I can attend any church I want to. I can listen to anything I want to. I can choose any candidate I believe in. I can say anything that's on my heart. I can express conflicts I have with the ruling power. I can start a business. Sell a product. And live a dream. These are all freedoms I enjoy. I engage in these freedoms and I appreciate them. But the only reason I have this quality of freedom, the only reason I have the freedom to do any of these things, is because of this. This is because of this. The price of freedom is great. And today, we remember that price. Today, we honor people who have gone to their graves in defense, in defense of our freedom. Greater love has no man than this. Then he lay down his very life for a friend. So when we get into this, when we talk through what does it actually mean, what it really means is somebody else paid for our freedom. So we need to remember that and take some time to actually think through that stuff. So uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to, you're stuck with me for announcements, so we'll just see how that goes, okay? So God, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are. And Jesus, we come before you and we know the freedom we have and not just come because it's free. Somebody paid the price. And this is just one way that we have to look at freedom, God, that we get to choose what we want to say, who we want to vote for, and all of that because of the, the sacrifice that was made for us, God. And so, God, we thank you for that. And for those people and those families who um, have lost soldiers and veterans and stuff like that, for the cost of our freedom, Jesus, we pray that you just be with them and that you would be in their presence and with them. And God, we come before you and we recognize that this is just a glimpse of the freedom that you, that you fought for us and that you uh, laid down your life for us. So we got the ultimate freedom uh, from sin, from evil, and all of that. You guys, we just want to say thank you that we have this freedom here in our country and uh, we love you. It's in your name for this. Amen. Amen. Alright, so when it comes down to announcements, uh, I don't know details, but I do know this. If you're new with us today, We'd love to connect with you, so you can meet us out of the guest services area, or you can text the word HERE, which is H-E-R-E, not H-E-A-R, right? Like, don't do that one. So, 209-233-2311, and then the other one is, this is, part of this great thing is of, uh, that we get to do is partner with the kingdom of heaven, and to start saying, okay, how does, where's, God, where are you moving? And how can we partner with you, not just with our gifts and our talents, but also with the resources that you've given us? And so how does that happen? What does it look like for us to be a generous church and all that kind of stuff as we do that? So we have a couple ways that you can partner with us financially speaking. You can go to rethinkchurch.cc, look at the gift tab, click on that, and you can give from there. Or you can do the black box in the back, and uh, 
checks, cash or checks. There's no debit card swipes or anything there for you or waiting that Apple Pay and stuff like that. So, uh, digitally speaking, go online. Uh, In-house stuff can go from there. So, but I just want to say thank you guys for the generosity and the way we to love on people and partner with uh, whoever guys is living in their community. And we don't have to be like, oh, no, I wonder if this happens. Uh, you guys are a generous church and I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, even down to the small little details that nobody cares about, nobody really wants to care about, like air conditioning. So, uh, we had some air conditioning repairs that we needed to happen, and it was like, hey, we have no savings, and so we just paid for it. So, thank you guys for your generosity when it comes to that. So, uh, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do Mark chapter 2. We're going to be towards the end, but I'm going to set it up. So, if you want to get to Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and then just kind of wait for a moment, that's where we're going to be. Shad, I'm going to put up a couple videos. This is uh, one video is a place called Mount Carmel. It's in the Galilee part of Israel. And uh, you can see this kind of spanning over the Sea of Galilee, which is a big lake. It's not really a big sea. It's like a small, small sea, big lake, whatever you call it. <coughs> but this right here is where Jesus is going to do the majority of his ministry. He does 90% of his ministry in three areas. Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see that he's there. And these are the, the, the triangle of these areas. He will spend the majority of his time spending, like, doing ministry around the, the Sea of Galilee. And this part of the sea is divided up into three different regions. Here the great guys, that's Herod the Christmas story, and then his sons take over after his death. In the western part, uh, Herod Antipas gets. The eastern part, Herod Philip gets. And then the Decapolis is over there, and they get, kind of get divided up like that. So, you have these two Herods who are brothers who hate each other to the point where because of them, I'm pretty sure Jerry Springer could not even write this script. But one of the Herods steals the wife of another Herod. Does that make sense? So there's like this small civil war and all this. And the prince, the, the, the princess, basically the queen, is a Nabataean princess. So Herod Philip tries to go to war against the Nabataean king and is completely outnumbered. And this is where Jesus was like, would you go to war without counting the cost? Would you go to war without knowing like how many soldiers you're going to face? Like, when Jesus says this, it's not just like, hyperbole. Like, this Herod literally wouldn't did this. So, <clears throat> part of what we need to understand is, all of these issues, but Jesus chooses to, to do ministry in the northern part of the kingdom, which, culturally speaking, is advanced. It's where the money is. It's where all the ideas are. Religiously speaking, it's completely backwards. All the religious, the religious center and the educator are in the Judean part of the country. And Jesus is like, no, I don't want to be there. He goes to where the ideas are, where the culture is, and where the movement of like ideas are. Does that make sense? So part of what we need to understand is Pierre Antipas is there, and uh, he, this is where Jesus lives. He lives in that part of the area. And what we get to see Jesus doing is spending all this time in the Galilean area avoiding one city in particular, Tiberias. It's this major part of the, the, the area, but Jesus is never recorded in going in Tiberias. He, it's the capital city of, the, of his region, and he avoids it. We don't know why, but Jesus, there's never recorded time that Jesus goes into Tiberias. So, um, give me one second. 
So part of what we get to understand is why did he do this or why did he avoid it? Uh, Tiberius is this little catastrophe thing. Herod, Herod Antipas moves his capital city from Sepphoris in the middle of the mountain ranges to being near a city, uh, a coastal city. Makes total sense if you're like, hey, there's no air conditioning. Why wouldn't you want to be there, right? There's a little hiccup, though. Remember, Herod, Herods are kings of the Jews, but they're not Jewish people. And so, they go there, and they start looking through this, and they realize there's graves everywhere. And for a Jewish person to live in a city of graves, that would be unclean. Now, at one point, they would always be unclean. So how do you get Jewish people to move to your capital city knowing that they're always going to be unclean? You don't really, right? But for Herod, he was just like, those are details, right? Like, like who cares? Let's just make this work for us. And so he does tax, uh, like, tax evasions. He gives away land. He like, gives massive tax breaks. And when you're, giving, when you're being taxed 85%, any tax break is a good break, right? And so people started compromising. Man, I can barely afford it here, but I know if I move to Tiberias, I may be ritually unclean, but at least I can feed my family. Right? And so these are some of the ideas that they had to wrestle through. How do you actually make this work? What does it look like for us to do this? And so they started doing these kind of things. And then now we have Tiberias, which is the city, and right now it's about 40,000 people, which is a pretty big city. In Jesus' time, it's like five to 7,000 people, which is a massive city in the ancient world. And so Tiberius, or sorry, Herod moves his capital city in Tiberias, builds it up. He intentionally brings in Roman refugees, basically, to say, hey, these Jewish people don't want to live here, could you live here? Right? And so as they do this, they turn Tiberius into this massive uh, fishing market. And there's a village next to it called Magala. It becomes the, they become the experts at salting fish, which is the only way to preserve fish. Right? So before refrigeration and all that, they're like, wonder how we can do this. So they salt the fish. Magdala had this massive tower, salt tower, two of them actually, and then they could become this place where they export fish all throughout the region. And then, collect all the money. So think about, like, wherever the Romans are, that's where the money is. Wherever the money is and the Romans are, that also means that's where the culture changes, that's where the ideas are, and they're turning this area from being very Jewish into more Roman-like, time and time again, right? And then there's this group of people called the Herodians that are following this. I mean, they're, they're Jewish people by name and by like just heritage, but they're not practicing Jewish people. And now they're looking at it going, man, our economy is so much better with Herod here because look at all the money we have. Humans would never compromise our faith and our values and say, look at the economy. I'm glad the first century people were the only ones who ever had to deal with this. Right? Especially as we come up on the elections and all that. Right? So here's the Herodians, and they're like, you know what? At least we get to feed our family. And look at this, look at all the like things we have compared to like if we just lived in Nazareth or wherever it was. Like we wouldn't have had any of these kind of uh, extras in a sense. And so what we see here is in Jesus' day and age. People are learning, literally having to wrestle through. Do I stay true to my faith and starve? Or do I compromise a little bit and feed my faith? 
And then this, uh, this group of people, the Herodians, who lived in both kingdoms, Herod Antipas and Herod Antipas, or sorry, Herod Philip, uh, they had to wrestle through, like, what do we do? Are we going to be pro-Rome? Are we going to be pro-Herods? Or are we going to, like, resist this stuff all the way? And so they became this group of people that were Jewish people by heritage, pro-Rome, pro-ideas, pro-culture, pro-progressive uh, ways of thinking and stuff like that. And that started really wrestling through how do we actually make this work? What does it look like for us to live in this world and be part of this world? And then they became the people that were in charge of collecting taxes. Because why would Rome hire people who are against Roman ideas to collect the taxes? So if you're part of the, Her the Herodian area, or the Herodian group of people, then you could be part of the, the tax collecting. Now remember, tax like they were taxed probably 85 to 90% of their income. Imagine being a fisherman, and you just got off of the, the Sea of Galilee, you were there, and you met by a tax collector, and he's like, oh, you caught a hundred fish. Great, we'll take 80 of them. Now what are you supposed to do? Right? So this is the, the lifestyle that they're in. This is like, I get mad at our taxes. I can't imagine 85. I'd probably tell Kibley, little Zakari, little zealot sword as well, and be like, fight the system, now man, burn it all. You know what I mean? Like, that would have been me. I even did that in high school and part of college, right? So here, like, add in all the extras. I'm like, oh, screw this. But anyway, I can't do that because that's political. So anyway, so, um, <laughs> but imagine you're in this, you're in this suck in here. Do you join the Herodian movement, which is an extreme way, progressive way of thinking, or do you join the Zealot movement, which is completely conservative? And there are two opposing ideologies. In Jesus' day. And so, here they have the Herodian. When it came to tax collecting, it was, became more like a bounty hunter and auctioneer type thing. So, if you were a successful business person, you had a ton of money, you could bid and get paid like an entry fee to get into the bidding part. So, here at Antipas would hire basically whoever you wanted to to collect the taxes. But in order to do that, you would like basically bid in. Say the entry is fifteen thousand dollars, and you would do that. You'd pay that money into it, and then you would bid into the auction, saying, "Hey, I can collect X amount of taxes in X amount of time." And Herod answered this. Herod Philip, whoever the Greek governor, would say, "I want the most amount of money in the short, the least amount of time." And whoever won that bidding war would become the chief tax collector. Does that make sense? So, then the chief tax collector would hire all these tax collectors. But if he had a massive contract. He just literally paid, saying, I will do all of this, and here's a, like half of it down. Does that make sense? So then these chief tax collectors hire tax collectors who are paying into part of their contract so that the chief tax collectors are not completely out of money. All these, all these people under, it's like a pyramid scheme. Does that make sense? And so you would, if you're a tax collector, you would buy into it knowing you would get your money back because you could exploit whoever you wanted to exploit for how much money you wanted to exploit. Does that make sense? Well, you may have owed $70,000 worth of taxes. You could charge $90,000. As long as you can pay the, the seventy, you get you pocket the rest. And there's no laws against it. You can do whatever you want. This is part of business. Does that make sense? So, with that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what it says. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake which is the Sea of God. A large crowd came to him and began to teach. 
As he walked along the, the, the shore, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Jesus says, follow me. Levi got up and he followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating there with him. And his disciples were there as well. For they were uh, many and followed him. So, verse 16. While their teachers of the law were there, the Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. And they said to his disciples, why does Jesus eat with these tax collectors and all these sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So, here's something I just want to point out, okay? Once again, here he is, he's walking along the sea of the, the, the shore. And this is the rhythm that we see in Jesus' life. He's going to spend some time isolated, not isolated, in solitary, connecting with the Father, but then he goes to the people, right? He's not constantly just staying up in the mountains, avoiding everybody. He's moving into where the people are, right? Now, he's also not just always with the people. He's sometimes going up to connect with the Father. There's a rhythm in his life. It's a rhythm in his ministry. And for you and I, we have to get into a rhythm of some sort. You have to have time, five, ten minutes a day, whatever it is, where you are, it's you and, your, and, and God. You just sit there in silence and connect with the Father. And, and implying this, that you have to somehow disconnect from the world as well. There should be a moment where you don't hear everything from the world. But then, you can't just sit there. Because that would be weird in a moment. Right? And at some point, you have to get out of the basement, you have to get out of the living room, you have to get out of whatever it is, and go out and do the thing, right? So, this is what we see Jesus doing. What we see Jesus doing here is walking along the people. Among the people. This is him, like Jesus' name. What is he? He's God with us. And he's not God with the good people, and he's not God with the bad people. He's God, he's God with all of us. And so the righteous, the sinners, the healthy, the unhealthy, he's walking along the people and saying, okay, I'm just going to be here with my people. And I don't care what your background is. He doesn't care about what God does. He breaks all social barriers. He doesn't really, like, he doesn't look at him and be like, oh, I can't be with you because, you know, whatever. Like, I'm just going to be with the people. And so this is part of what we see him doing over and over again. And so um, there's that rhythm that he has. And the question I just want to ask you, do you have that same rhythm? Do you have a rhythm in life where you connect with the Father by disconnecting with the world and then going out and connecting with the world? And, and ministering and serving the world that you live in, maybe it's at work or school or whatever, out of that. Now, Mark tells us this, that he starts to teach the crowds. Because Mark hasn't told us what he actually teaches the crowds. Mark is almost intentionally leaving out his teachings. Like he wants us to pick up on what Jesus is actually doing. Not the words that he said. It would be awesome if he told us what he was teaching us, right? Be like, oh yeah, I can tell that one parable. Oh yeah, it'd be great. Like, Mark doesn't care. He's just like, here's the thing that Jesus is doing. And I think what Jesus, what Mark is trying to get us to focus in on is the actions of Jesus. Not the words. And not getting up, caught up in the details. When we hear the teaching of Jesus, I just got into a debate this week with a guy about the teachings of the Bible. And he got caught up in details, I got caught up in details, and nothing got accomplished. Right? And he didn't convince me to change my ways, and I didn't convince him to change his ways. Well, we had a great debate for 15 minutes, right? 
both of us using scriptures and both of us telling them you don't know what you're talking about and all that other stuff, but nothing was actually accomplished, right? Christians would never be taught about that, right? I think what Mark is actually trying to get us to focus in on is don't worry about the details. Don't worry about what, because when you look at the words of Jesus, you can debate, well, this is what it means, and no, this is what I think it means, and nothing gets done, right? But the question is, if you see Jesus doing something, are you actually following this example? You can't debate that. You either are doing it, or you're not. And what do we see Jesus doing here? He's modeling this for us. The rhythm of his life, connecting with the Father and ministering to the world. What else is he doing? He's teaching. He's healing people. He's praying for people. He's calling others to do this world work with him. He's not isolated. Are you doing life with others or are you trying to isolate yourself from others? Do you find yourself praying for people who are sick? Or being like, hmm, that sucks to be you. Right? And just having the nice heart, like warm heart, uh, heart feelings and stuff like that. And you're just like, yeah, just look, you're right. <laughs> so, are you, are you just kind of worried about like, oh, I just wonder if that looked good? Or are you actually trying to drive into the, the places of evil? Are you avoiding all of that? This is what it looks like to, to see the model of Jesus. Like, Mark is worried about us following the example of Jesus, not just the teachings of Jesus. Because there's, like, you can debate if it was, like, literal or allegorical and all that. And I think that Jesus, like, well, Mark is trying to get something about Jesus is, here's the example, are you actually doing it? And the question is, like, you can, I can't answer that, only you can, right? So, now, now, Capernaum itself, where Jesus is kind of walking around, it's a border between three different areas. You have Herod Antipas' area, you have Herod Philip's area, and then you have the Decapolis' area. And Herod is trying to collect as many taxes as he possibly can. The chief tax collector, whoever that is, is there, right? And so, you have tolls that you pay, Right? Like when you go to Illinois, you pay tons of tolls. Same thing as in Capernaum. The way they would collect taxes, taxes was annually, but then you would also, on any goods they didn't build or caught or stuff like that. And Tiberius is truly trying to be the fix, the, the fish exploration type thing, but they're just going to like tax as many fishing things as you possibly can. So this is also why fishermen would fish at night. They're trying to hide it. Like, oh no, I only, only caught 50 fish. And then you pocket it, you hide it somewhere else. Um, that was the other part of that. So then you have all these other issues, but then you have tolling that goes on. And so if you go into the new territory, if you're coming out of the new territories and into this new territory, then you're being taxed and stuff like that. We don't know what kind of booth that uh, Matthew is in, but he's in a toll booth, or sorry, in a tax booth of some sort, and Jesus sees him. And somehow Jesus can see the heart condition of not just the, the surface level, right? And he looks at it, and I think he sees the son of Abraham living in shame. Because here's Matthew who has all the money in the world he possibly could get. Right? Money is not an issue for him. He has limited power, but he has no respect. His family has probably disowned him. His family is probably ashamed of every decision that he ever made from that point on. And educationally speaking, if he's in a tax booth, that also means he's not a rabbi or a disciple of a rabbi, right? So at some point, he's dropped out of the whole education system for the Jewish culture. And so now he has this question of what do I do? So I might as well get as much money as I possibly can. 
And he's compromised his faith. He's abandoned his heritage. And he's turned his back completely on all the Jewish culture that, that's there in the, in the name of money. I'm glad he's the only one who's ever had to do this. And no one else in the world has ever had to do this, right? But now here he is broken and ashamed. And I think Jesus sees him and he says, come follow me. And what he does here, like notice, Matthew's not asking, hey, can I follow you? Somehow Jesus sees into this. And Jesus sees a person with a contract heart and a broken heart, like the psalmist would say, like this, these are the people close to God. If you're broken hearted and you have a contract or a humble heart, you can be close to God. Contrast this with the rich young ruler that we'll look at later on as we get into Matthew, or sorry, Mark. What we see here is this rich young ruler running up to Jesus, saying, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus' response is like, what do you call me good? Only God is good. Right? In our main group, we had this great discussion about what that actually meant. And I think Jesus is hinting at him, like, hey, are you calling me God? Right? Like, if, if the only God is good, you're calling me good, right? So, in that response, he says this. Well, you know all the laws, right? He's like, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and all this. And notice the, the rich young ruler's response. Oh, yeah, all of those I've done since, you, since I was a boy. Right? Like you do. You just don't murder people. You just don't have, like, an affair, stuff like that. You're good. You don't lie. Bull crap. Well, teenage boys never lie. Right? So, part of the process of what we need to understand is, we've all done this, right? We've all said, oh, I've, done, I've never done anything wrong. Any of us have ever done this? Something goes wrong in our life, we're like, God, why are you doing this? We've never done anything bad. Hey, whatever. Yeah, you're a sinner. Right? So, Part of that process we need to understand is there's a motivational distance that we have to hear. It's like, are you humble? Are you brokenhearted? Are you self-righteous and arrogant? And I think this is what Jesus is looking at in both scenarios here. Are you humble and brokenhearted? God is going to draw, draw you near to him. If you're arrogant and self-righteous, he's going to let you be. And you won't be able to follow him. And you won't be able to stay in step with him and experience the grace that he has ready for us. So part of what we need to understand is, what's the condition of your heart? If Jesus were to look back, look, walk by where you were today, or this week, would he see somebody who's humble and brokenhearted, or self-righteous? And only you can, you can answer that. Because you can look the same on the, on, the, on the surface. But here's Matthew, who's a son of Abraham as well, and he's just brokenhearted. And somehow, I think God sees this, and Jesus is like, hey, Come follow me. And he restores all of that in Matthew's life in that regard. So, uh, verse 15. Let's look at this really quick. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners there. We read right over that, and we're like, that's awesome. That's cool, right? But the reality of it is that's explosive language in the first century. Who you had a meal with was who you associated with. And who you're okay with associating with. So, if you and I are sitting down and having meals with people that are completely different than you, it was way, way different. The Jewish mindset was like, yeah, love your neighbor. And guess who the neighbors were for the Jewish people? Other Jews who were just like you. Not just other Jews. Like, you had to be a Jew who also voted like you, had the different uh, ways of, like, interpreting the Old Testament. You had different rabbi parties and stuff like that. And so if you thought differently, then you didn't, then they weren't your neighbor. Jesus, he's saying, no, no, 
the neighbor means anybody around me who has a different skin color, who has a different way of voting, who has a different ideology and all that. And so all of those things come into play. But like Jesus saying well, who your neighbor is, it's everybody. Even those people who are scandalous. Let me ask you this. Who would you have a meal today that would be considered scandalous in your life? That if your friend saw you having a meal with that person, they'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you sitting down there and having a meal with that person? And if you don't have anybody in your life like that, go find new friends. You should have somebody in your life like that. If not, you're living this isolated little bubble life that no, like nobody who could be like different than you could ever break into that little bubble. You should have some people that are like, whoa, what are you thinking? And if you don't, go join a gym and find somebody like that. Go talk to somebody. It's not that hard to find people different than you. The question is, do you actually want to go find them? Right? So notice what the religious leaders are asking the Pharisees again. They're saying, man, what are you doing here? Like, why are you having why are you having a meal with all these people that are different than you, sinners or tax collectors? Like, what is the actually point here? And what notice what Jesus says here? It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but it's the sick. Imagine a doctor who avoided all sick people. Right? And it's like, oh, you're sick, I can't see you. Never mind. I, was, I only need to see my healthy patients. Some pastors are like that. Some Christians are like that. Right? But I want to step, give this picture here, okay? We put this post up a few uh, months ago, or a few weeks ago. And it didn't format in here, so I'm just going to read it to us. Jesus did not eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them to call them to a changed life. A fruitful life. A life when you died to self and lived for him. His call is of transformation, not of affirmation of identity. And part of what we have to understand here is there's a tension when it comes to dealing with this. Is if you, like, let me just put it this way. If you're not alcoholic, don't go hang out at the bar and try to, like, reach those people at the bar. Right? You have to be aware of that. When, like, when the cigar bar happened here, Heather looked at me and, like, opened up and she was like, don't you ever step foot in there. I watched you literally break the addiction of cigars. Don't ever do it. And I was like, okay. Now, years ago, but at the same point, I get it, right? I'm not going to put myself in that situation to, to get back into that whole lifestyle. And so part of what we need to understand is there's some boundaries that we need to have. But at the same point, you and I have to have these abilities to step into situations where you can be the light and the salt. Right? So if you don't have friends who are different than you, that maybe are sinners or tax collectors, deemed like that, then what we need to understand is, go find that. Go step into the situation. But if all you're doing in there is sitting there trying to affirm them and make sure they love, and you never speak truth into their life, are you doing what God Jesus' model here? Not really. Jesus' whole point of sitting with them and hanging out with them was not so they felt good in their sin. It was so that he could lead the example that this is what it looks like to live differently. This is what it looks like for you to lead a life that is completely different and transformed and free of sin. But if you don't have anybody, if you're in this self-righteous bubble, and all you're doing is hanging out with people going, oh, look how bad they are. Can you believe they did that? You're sinning just as bad. Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Probably not. So there's this tension that you need to live into. 
and it takes maturity, and it takes staying in step with the Spirit. Does that make sense? So you need to lay, lay, learn how to lean into that. So, uh, Ecclesiastes tells us this, that there's nothing new under the sun. Notice what you see in Mark's Gospel here. He never looks at the symptoms of things and says, oh, that's what I want to solve. He's looking at the things behind the symptoms. Well, I think what Mark, what Jesus is trying to do here is, why is, why is Matthew the need to be a tax collector? Why is he even finding this out? He's addressing the Herodians in such a way that it dismantles the power of the Herodians. And it's like exposing their evil. They're like, you think everything is just based on the economy? As long as the economy is good, we're all good. And that's not the reality. And I think what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is like, you and I can look at the symptoms of our lives, or we can go deeper and start confronting the powers and evil things that are behind the powers and all that. And if you had to look at the Herodians and you had, had to like summarize them, you would see them as strategic ambition. That they were strategic, whatever they, the risk they took was all about how to increase our bottom line. Ambition because they did take a lot of business risks, right? Becoming a tax collector wasn't easy. Here's Matthew, just like he would be yelled at no matter what he did. Have you ever been in a job where you get yelled at just for doing your job? Every day, all day. Imagine that lifestyle. How annoying would that be? Right? So you have all this limited power, but here you are just doing your job and you're being yelled at by everybody involved. So we have plenty of jobs that we can easily throw that name into that category here, right? So, but here he is just doing his job. And it took a lot of risk for somebody to do this, to be, in, to be a tax collector, even a tax collector, a chief tax collector. But in this reality, what we have to understand is the strategic ambition was not for the betterment of the community. The strategic ambition was the betterment of themselves. And if you, you and I had to look at the way of Herodians compared to the contrast of the way of Christ, what do you see? Was Christ strategic and ambition for himself? Or was he humble? Was he a man of integrity? And was he put himself into being vulnerable over and over and over again? And I think what we see here is we have these two ideologies conflicting with each other. You have an actual physical kingdom and you have the kingdom of Christ coming at odds with each other. And I think as we move into missions Sundays today and then we move into towards bigger pictures that's going to happen in 2023, 2024 and all that, I think what we have to keep in mind is, what's the way of Christ? With these two different kingdoms, strategic ambition, you'll see it. You'll see it in political agendas all over the place, right? They're going to be ambitious towards their own bottom line to get your vote and all that other stuff. But do they actually match the way of Christ? Are they going to be people of integrity and being vulnerable to be the betterment of the kingdoms they represent? And when it comes to the, like, uh, the way of Christ and stuff like that, what we see is he protects the victims over and over again. Or people and the powers are like Herodians, and they exploit the victims over and over and over again. And as we look into, like, we've had some people ask questions about why we, why we partner with Destiny Rescue and stuff like that. And I'm not condoning uh, Matthew, the tax collectors, or prostitutes and stuff like that. What I'm saying is, when you're in a place where there's no, no options, no visible options, I can at least see how those people can make that decision. 
be like, oh yeah, I don't want to feed my family, I have to do this kind of a job. Does that make sense? I can see it, I don't condone it, I can see where they're coming from. And so instead of constantly questioning it about that, let's question why is that even a reality? Why is that even a possibility? What are we doing to dismantle the evil and the power that's making this possible? And as we had into Mission Sunday, I think what we should do is consider how can I use my resources, how can I use my time to help liberate and redeem and restore the victims? Not sit back and be like, oh, it, it just meant to have a better choice or have a job doing it. Like, you have no clue what their story is. We have no clue what Matthew's story was leading up to that point. What we can see is, okay, there's some powers at play here that we don't understand. And I think that the way of, the way of Jesus is not questioning and judging, it's helping to liberate those kinds of things. So how do you do this? What does it look like? But I think you have to stay humble. You need to be people of integrity and say, okay, how do I advance the kingdom of God, even in my own decision, how I spend my money, and how I use my resources and stuff like that to help influence others around me. Let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are and everything you've done for us. God, I pray you just watch over us and that you would guide us. God, we live in a complex world. In a world that is influenced by things we don't necessarily even understand. But God, help us to be wise and humble. Help us to do whatever we can to be people of integrity. To be the people that protect and deliberate the victims and not sit back and judge them. And Jesus, would you help us to continually bleed for you and live for you and put you in display in our lives. And that this one hour would not become the thing, the end all be all. God, as we are sent out of here, would you let the 167 hours that would be between the two Sunday services be the things that we could really put into practice and put you and your kingdom on display in our lives. We love you, God. Ask my wife. She's not here. But I'm, I, make a, I make poor decisions, poor choices. Um, and I'm not up here because I'm good uh, or I think I'm worthy. I'm up here because God still sees fit to use me. And in obedience, he uses me. And uh, as we sing this song, Lord, I need you, uh, I want you to know God doesn't use you because you're worthy or you think you're worthy. He uses you because you're willing. And in obedience, he will bless you and bless your life. Um, so as we sing these words, I invite you, you can kneel, stand, sit, whatever you want. Um, just know that God's not done with you. God wants to use everyone in this room uh, for his kingdom. Lord, I come. How we give, I find my rest. Without you, 
had fallen apart. You're the one that ties my heart. Lord, I need Mission Barbecue for lunch. Okay, so after a service next week, we're going to go to Mission Barbecue and uh, have a good time together in fellowship, all right? Uh, know that we love you. 
We think church would love you. God loves you. And uh, if you're willing, he will bless you and bless his kingdom and bless his people. Let's have a great week and be the church.